I'm chronically guilty of watching sports and criticizing everything. Players, coaches, refs, it really doesn't matter. If you watch a game with me, you're probably going to hear something like, how do you miss a layup? I say that a lot. How, how, do, how do you miss a call like that? What kind of defense are we running? My wife can tell you I'm a real joy to watch a game with. I don't know why she usually leaves the room. I'm not really sure why. Um, now, I see, I played a lot of sports growing up, and I should know better than to criticize from afar, like on the other side of a television screen, I'm criticizing people who are actually in the game, in real life, sweating, making split-second decisions that I can't possibly comprehend, and I'm acting like, like it's easy, and I'm so, so overly critical of it, especially if I'm invested in a game. I'm over here with a bag of Cheetos, though, <laughs> acting like this is all easy. I don't know if you, you struggle with that, too, ha having that kind of critical spirit when it comes to sports, you know, not, not maybe that big of a deal, but it's, you know, it's a disconnect. To watch it on television or sitting in the stands, there's a disconnect. There's a lack of perspective. I forget that I've missed layups, a great many layups in my life, and I, somehow it's, it doesn't register with me because there's a difference between actually being in the game versus simply being a spectator, right? There's a disconnect there. And y'all, that's true spiritually, it's true maybe in a lot of areas of life, but it's true spiritually. It's very easy for us, it's very natural for us, to think spiritual thoughts and maybe feel spiritual feelings, but lack any real application to life, to real life. So, for example, it's a lot easier for me to think about being a generous person than it is to actually sacrifice in order to be generous. Isn't one much easier than the other? It's a lot easier for me to think of myself as a devoted person than it is to actually live in diligent pursuit of God with my whole heart. There can be a disconnect there between thoughts and feelings and reality. And this is what the Apostle Paul is going to speak to today. And it actually comes to us in the form of a prayer. Right? Well, we just read from Colossians 1 in the middle of Colossians 1. Paul is praying for something that he desires for this church, the church of Colossae, and by extension, he desires for the church, for, that, for us here today. And what Paul is praying for is not a spirituality merely made up of thoughts and feelings, but Paul is praying for a Christianity that actually changes how we live, a Christianity that is actually in the game, rubber meets the road, real life kind of stuff. So you and I, we don't watch this from afar today. It's easy to read the Bible as if we're kind of reading over Paul's shoulder. Isn't that great? But no, what he prays today is for us. And, and the desire that I hope we'll have as we walk out of here in a few minutes is, I want to be in the game. I want this to be true of my life. And so Colossians 1, at least this little portion we're going to see today, it's a prayer. It's not a, com a series of commands necessarily. It's a desire. Paul is asking God for these things, but what he asks is what he hopes to see actually take root in their lives. What he's asking for is something that's meant to be an outcome that's meant to be tangible. So the Christian faith, listen, the Christian faith is certainly about thoughts and feelings, but it's not limited there. It's got to take root in how we live. It's got to, it's got, it's got to bear fruit, one of the things Paul will actually pray for today. It's got to show up in how we live. That's what we ought to desire and pray for. And so in the, in the beginning verses, we talked about this a good bit last week, the beginning verses of Colossians 1, Paul affirms a fascinating thought 
that the gospel of Jesus, he says, is bearing fruit and increasing in you, in us as a church. That's a wonderful thing. But now Paul wants to pray for application. Application. I want to see it show up more and more and more in your life. So two things Paul prays for very generally, what, we, what we're going to see today. He prays first that we would know God's will, that we would deeply know and understand God's will. And the second prayer comes from that knowledge, and it is that we would apply God's will. We'd live it out. To know God and his will and to live it out. So we see that verse, verse 9. For this reason also. Now, Paul is praying uh, in light of verse 8. If you look back in your Bible at verse 8, Epaphras has informed Paul about the Colossians being a very loving people. He has informed us of your love in the Spirit. Therefore, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, since the day we heard of your love in the Spirit, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, here's the prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the first thing Paul prays for, he wants the Colossians, he wants us to be filled. And the idea there is not just filling up, but saturating through. He wants something to happen to us that absolutely soaks us through. And the thing is the knowledge of God's will. And y'all, it's interesting to be filled right here really carries the idea of being controlled by something. Not just possessing something, having a lot of it, but so much so that it controls how you live. Now think about, it's, it's at a certain time in your life, perhaps, you've been filled with joy. Or maybe you've been filled with anger. And you know that in that, that moment, everything else in your life is touched by that feeling. If you're filled with joy, little things don't really bother you the way they normally would, right? Because you're just so joyful. You just kind of walk through life a certain kind of way. You're controlled by that. If you're filled with anger, of course, it's the opposite. Every little thing bothers you because you're being controlled by a dominant emotion. It's one of the reasons the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea being wine, alcohol, controls you in a negative way. The Spirit is meant to control you in the direction of Christ, right? So the filling here is a controlling influence, And so Paul isn't just praying that you would have more knowledge, that you would know more stuff about God. He's saying that I want you to be soaked through to to the core of your very being, that you would be filled and controlled by the knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, real quickly, before we move on, this this filling, you, you notice it says be filled, that's a passive verb. This is not something you do. You can't fill yourself. God has to do the filling. This is something we're meant to desire. It won't happen by accident. We're meant to desire it, to ask for it. But ultimately, this is a spiritual knowledge and wisdom. Okay, this is not something you and I are meant to manufacture. God is the one who does the filling. Now, what are we supposed to be filled with and saturated with? It's the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, y'all, I don't know if you're like me. When I think about God's will, that, that phrase very generally, God's will, usually I try to make that very personal and, and exclusively personal. I say, what is God's will for my life? And maybe you've done this before. What is God's will for me in terms of where should I go to college? Where should I move in, to and live? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Questions like that. And y'all, those are, that's totally legitimate. God does have a will for every person in this room. 
He, he, uh, he created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Philippians 2 says. God, Ephesians 2. God has uh, a, a unique desire for your personal life. Okay? Yes. But that's not what Paul's praying right here. Not for God's personal will for you. What Paul is praying right here is that, that we would be soaked through with a deep knowledge of who God is. What God says and what God's purposes are through Jesus Christ. This is the big picture right here. The truth of the gospel, which is bearing fruit and increasing in the Colossians, Paul says, I want you to know that truth at the deepest level. That's what, that's what the, the will of God is in this case. That's the knowledge that, that we're after. And so this is a knowledge that gets deep down into the heart of God and the truth of his gospel. Uh, see, the, the, the false teachers who were trying to infiltrate the church of Colossae, a lot of the false teachings said something to this effect right here, that it's good to have a Bible, that's good, that's helpful, that's a great start, but really what you ought to be after is a special knowledge outside of the Bible. There, this is the kind of knowledge that there is, there's no book for. There's a special mystical personal knowledge that you can tap into and really get to know God or, or the gods or some transcendent being. And normal people don't get to experience this. This is for the super spiritual. It's a heresy called Gnosticism that says there's a special knowledge, gnosis, that's where we get the word knowledge. There's a special knowledge out there if you're willing to really tap into it, and then you'll get to experience something special of God that nobody else gets to know. Now, the Apostle Paul flatly denies this. Later on in chapter 2, we're going to see it later, he calls it empty deception. There is no special, mystical, outside, extra knowledge about God that only a few people, if you're lucky, you get to experience it. No, Paul is saying, he's praying, I want you to know the fullness of God's will. I want you to have a knowledge, a deep knowledge of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's praying for something that is actually possible for us, not for just a select few who tap into it, but for every Christian. And the way that we know that most truly, most faithfully, we can know God through his word. We prayed this from Psalm 12 a minute ago. Y'all, this is one of the fundamental beliefs of Harvest Church is that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is true. And we believe that the Bible is totally sufficient for the Christian life. And what we mean when we say that, when we say the Bible is sufficient, that means there's nothing outside of this book that is necessary for us where God is concerned. There's no special extra knowledge that has not been revealed to us in this book already that if we're really spiritual, we'll tap into it outside of what's already been given to us. We do not believe that. That everything God has given to us in his word is sufficient for us and true for all manner of Christian life. And so the prayer for God to, be, to saturate you, to soak you through with the knowledge of his will. Paul is not praying for some mystical, special experience. Paul is praying not that God would download from the cloud, from heaven, something special to you, but that we would deepen in the revelation of what he's already given to us. And so God has given us a, a desire, I hope, to know more about him, to know him more, but he's also given us the means to know him more. And most of us, the truth is, this is true for me too, most of us, we want to know God, but we, a lot of times we just dabble when it comes to the means of knowing him. We dabble in his word rather than drinking deeply from it. 
And then I wonder why I don't have more wisdom. I wonder why I don't have the depth of knowledge that Paul is praying for. And so, so long story short right here, if you and I, if we as Christians, if we want to be in the game, if I want my life, your life, to be fruitful for God, if I want to live a life of sincere obedience to God, it's going to start right here. It's going to start right here. Um, if, if we dabble, we'll never actually be filled with this kind of knowledge. I just don't think it works that way because God has given us the means by his grace to know him. And now for Paul, listen, it's not just knowledge for its own sake. We talked about that. It's a saturating thing. It's an influencing, controlling reality. Paul doesn't just want us to know more stuff. That can't be the point at all. It's a knowledge that is applied. And we see that in verse 10. So here's the prayer for a depth of knowledge, spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that, verse 10, with the result that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this is cause and effect here. The deeper your knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding is, the more your life is going to change as a result. That's the idea here. It's cause and effect. And the point is clear that to know God, if you're going to know God, you're going to walk with God. Paul doesn't see any dichotomy there. To know God is to walk with God. Those two things work together. To live in a way that reflects the goodness of God and his truth. Um, Y'all, we will never perfectly do this. And so I take the burden away from us, I hope, a little bit today. The, on, the, on my very best day, I never perfectly reflect the nature and character of Jesus, the divine Son of God. Okay? Um, I am shot through with sin, so are you. And yet, here's the thing, that's not a cop-out. We don't get off the hook, because Paul wouldn't pray for something that's not possible. He's not praying for some grand thing that, that we really can't ever actually experience. No, what Paul says is possible that you and I can live in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the Lord's expectation of us is not that we would perfectly reflect Jesus in every single detail, thought, word, and action. God knows, that we, God knows what you are and what I am. And yet God still esteems us that we in Christ can live in a manner worthy of him, that we can bear fruit in every good work, that, that, that every circumstance in your life is a right opportunity to bear fruit and, and give honor to God, to please God. Now, that is a daunting thought, I know, because you know who you are and I know my own heart. The thought that, man, I can actually, in every circumstance, I can walk in a manner worthy, I can bear fruit in every good thing. That's daunting, right? I, I don't know, I can't imagine that any of us would raise our hands in, in this moment and say, God, yes, I'm the bullseye here. Y'all follow me and you'll see how it's done. I can't imagine that any of us would have that kind of confidence. In, in our obedience of verse 10. But here, I want to focus in on this for a second. What is the motivation? We see the command, or it's, not, it's, a, it's a prayer, but we take it as a command to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to, to bear fruit in every good work. But what's the motivation? Because that's so important. You see in the middle of that, of that little phrase in verse 10, right between those two things I just mentioned, Paul says, to please God in all respects. That's one of the things he prays for that you and I would please God in every way. Now, that right there is the Christian motivation for obedience, at least in terms of the context today. That's the motivation, to please God in every way. Why does that matter? Um, if, if you could get deep down into your own heart, 
only you can really do that, only you and God, could really get deep down into your own heart to ask yourself this question. Why do I obey God? When I obey God, when I obey what the Bible says, why do I do it? Have you ever asked yourself that question? See, a lot of people, and I'm guilty, I'm going to give you two things, I'm guilty of both, by the way, but a lot of people obey God or obey the Bible or do what's right out of fear. A fear of being punished, fear of what might happen to me if I don't do it, fear of what God might do to me. I don't want to go to the bad place, and therefore I've got to do what the Bible says. Or maybe it's a fear of the opinion of other people, that if I don't obey God, then I'll be excluded from certain circles. Other people will think poorly of me. I'll lose my reputation. I might get excluded from a certain church if I don't do it, and it's fear-based. And there are other people, many people, who obey God, not out of fear, but they obey God for a reward. The thought being, if I will do what God says, then I will be, uh, I will put God in my debt, and he will have to bless me because he has to bless the good guys. And so the more I obey, the more God has to do good things for me. Or maybe the, the reward is not so much from God as it is from others, that other people will think well of me, other people will in- include me, I'll, I'll, I'll grow, I'll, I'll be able to climb up the ladder in the religious church community or whatever it may be. I'm going to get a reward for my obedience. Now listen, in either case, whether the motivation is fear or reward, in either case, are we actually doing what Paul is praying for in verse 10? Is our motivation, does it line up with verse 10? No, listen, if, if we are obeying God, either out of fear or for a reward, the truth is we're obeying him for our sake, not his. Fear of what might happen to me if I don't. The reward that I might receive if I do, right? Ultimately, I may be doing good things. I may be trying very hard, but the ultimate aim and goal is me. It's not God. And that's what Paul is trying to cut to the, to, the, to the center of this thing here so that we can see a true mark of the Christian is not just obedience merely, but it's obedience done right. It's obedience from a heart that desires to please God. That we as Christians are meant to obey God, to do what's right because it pleases him. Whether we ever get any tangible reward from it or not. We do it because it pleases God, simply because we love God and we delight in God and we want to know him more. And y'all, I don't know if that is a stinging thought in your own heart, but it is for me. Because I, so often my motivation, the externals might look sufficient. You may look at me and think I'm doing okay. But at the depth of the motivation of my heart, what am I really after here? Am I after God for his own sake? Or am I I more after what I see in the mirror or what I hope to receive in exchange? Uh, I think I quoted this verse last week from 1 John chapter 5, where John says, this is what it means to love God, that we keep his commandments. To love God is to obey God, John says. And then he says this, he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now that may be for you and me a confusing thing. Because we... God's commands are so holy. They're they're against my sinful nature. They're really hard sometimes. God's commands are so lofty and so righteous. How can John say God's commands are not burdensome? Because of love, because of motivation. 
Why does God give us righteous commands? Because he loves us. Because he wants what's good for you. He doesn't, God doesn't command us because he hates us and wants to ruin our lives. He wants to give us a life that reflects his glory. He loves you and therefore he commands you according to what's right. And why do we obey those commands? Paul says, John says, Jesus would say, because we love him. And listen, if you obey God out of love, then it may be hard, but it is not a burden. Any more than loving your spouse, you would never think of that as a burden. No, it's love. And so if God loves you enough to command you according to what is right and what pleases him, then the desire of our heart should be, I want to obey him for his sake, to please him in all respects. Y'all, the motivation can change everything. And so we can't pass it up. This is not meant to be a burden for us, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. It doesn't have to be. And so Paul has prayed for a deeper knowledge and wisdom. Paul has prayed for a a way of life that that bears fruit and pleases God. And now Paul is going to pray for a different kind of application as he closes this little prayer, beginning in verse 11. If a person's going to love and obey God, bad news, it's not bad news, but the truth is you're going to face all manner of conflict and struggle. We already said this. Life is not going to go easy for you just because you're a Christian. And Paul's going to pray concerning that. Look at verse 11. He prays that we, the church, that we might be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So here's the truth. In the midst of a world by and large, that does not accept and support our faith, in the midst of a culture that does not accept and support our worldview and our moral framework, in the midst of a very real spiritual war that we live in against a very real enemy, the devil, Paul is praying right here something that we desperately need, that we would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. Remember, this is a passive verb, strengthen. This is something you can't do for yourself. God has got to provide this. And I love what Paul says, that Paul says, according to God's glorious might. That means the strength we need, the power we need in this case, comes from a a limitless supply. God can't run out of what we need from him And out of his abundance, God is going to pour out what we need, a power, a strength that for us is even more than we might require in any given situation. And the purpose of that strength is not just that we would get puffed up and strong, he says, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, for the attaining of all endurance and grace in the midst of conflict. Um, I just mentioned this, but we we could say it every week. We can't make any illusions here that the Christian life is meant to be on cruise control. I mean, you've probably already figured that out. If you haven't gone through the fire quite yet, that just means you're in the bullpen, okay? And they're going to call on you at some point. It's going to happen. Your time's coming. The Christian life is not easy. We, we give up on that illusion. Nor are we some sort of Christian superheroes that when life is tough, we just rise above the fray unfazed because I'm a Christian and and nothing should affect me. No, y'all, life is incredibly hard. And we as Christians don't get an exemption from that. In fact, life may even be at times harder for us because we follow Jesus. And so Paul says we need endurance and patience. 
which God must provide by his strength. A lot of times we don't pray for that kind of endurance and patience until we really desperately need it. Paul's praying for it perhaps in advance. They might not feel like they need it in that moment as they're reading the letter, but the day's coming. And so Paul wants them to have it at their fingertips always, right? But you notice this, coupled with the prayer for patience and endurance is what? Joy and thanksgiving. And the Bible just messes with us on this one. Uh, It's in James chapter 1. It's in Romans chapter 8. When the Bible talks so often about, about pain and suffering, it couples those things with joy and gratitude. And that may be, that may, if you're really suffering and you read James 1, Romans 8, right here in Colossians 1, that might make you feel guilty or might make you even angry to say, in the midst of all that I'm going through, I'm supposed to be happy? I'm supposed to give thanks? And y'all, the, the, the scripture is so intentional on this. It's not an accident. It's not some flippant feel-good kind of message. When the Bible speaks of pain and suffering, so often it couples it together with joy and gratitude. And here's why. In the uniqueness of the Christian faith, anybody can be happy and thankful when things are going well. Anybody. You don't have to be a religious person to be happy when life is going your way. But a unique quality of a Christian, the way we're meant to be at least, is that we can account for joy and gratitude even when life is going badly. There's something about us, and it's not to our credit ultimately, but there's something about us that ought to be unique, that even when life is hard, we feel that pain at the deepest level, but that pain does not bring us to destruction. What Paul tells us in verse 12, he says, listen, we're not giving thanks for bad things necessarily. We're not thanking God for all the bad stuff. We're thanking God for what transcends the bad stuff. And you see what he says? We joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Our ultimate joy does not come from circumstances. I surely hope it doesn't, because then life becomes a a very fragile roller coaster, and you just hope for the best. No, to be a Christian is this, that our joy is anchored so much more deeply than anything we can experience on this side of heaven, And the anchor is what we've been given in Christ. Do you see it? When when we read through the letters of Paul, we see that we are in Christ, that we have an inheritance that we we didn't deserve. And, and, And the point right here is that we've been brought into something. We've been qualified for something that we were otherwise disqualified to have. And I I love the phrase here that that we've been qualified. God looks upon you and me, even though we're sinners, and in Jesus Christ, he brings us out of disqualification and into his family. He says, you now, by no earning on your own part, you have been granted an inheritance. What Jesus Christ has done for you is bearing fruit today, but it will on into eternity. All the riches of God forever are yours because of Christ. He has brought you in as his child. He has set his seal upon you, and he has positioned you as an heir to eternal glory. No matter what we face in this life, we need endurance and patience for it, yes. We need power and strength for it now, yes, of course. But our anchor is not in the moment. Our anchor is what is laid up in heaven for us. We have an inheritance that cannot be spoiled or defiled or diminished or lost. So listen, how how can a Christian 
engage in reality, right? We don't ignore pain and suffering like we're supposed to be exempt. We don't rise above it like a superhero or something like that. No, we engage it because it's real life. But how do we remain joyful and grateful even when life turns sour and harsh? Because we have an eternal hope that is absolutely certain. As certain is, as certain as, as we can know that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, so certain is that inheritance reserved in heaven for us. And it is our anchor for our soul. Um, I heard this recently, and it, it's true, but it really surprised me. May, it may be a surprise to you. Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, almost half of the New Testament. And he often records prayers, like what we're, we're seeing today in Colossians 1. He often records prayers. Ephesians is a great example of that. We see it multiple times there. And he tells them what he's praying for. But to my knowledge, Paul never prays for changes of circumstance. Not for the churches he's praying for. We certainly didn't, he doesn't do it here. Paul doesn't pray for a change in their circumstance. Not that that's wrong. We see it all throughout the Bible, in the Psalms especially. We, we see prayers for changes in circumstance. That's great. But that's not what Paul typically prays for the church. Do you see what he prays for? What he's praying today? He's praying for deeper knowledge, not an easier road. But deeper knowledge, deeper trust, deeper hope, love, peace, joy, strength, boldness. He wants them to change by God's grace, even if their circumstances never do. And that is a powerful testimony to the desire for God in our lives. Things do change. Things do come and go. Times do get, get harder or easier depending on circumstance. But our joy, our hope, our knowledge, our peace, our strength is rooted more deeply than those things. And so Paul prays for where it's truly found. Um, and so Jesus transcends circumstance. And if nothing else in life changes, we can change in our pursuit and experience of him. Uh, and I think this is why Paul gives us a little add-on to the prayer. I'm not sure that verses 13 and 14 are part of the prayer. They don't appear to be. But to me, they're coupled together because here's, here's the question. Paul prays this very ambitious prayer. I mean, my goodness, this is lofty. This is, big. This, is, this is daunting. This is a whole life kind of prayer right here. This isn't something you can accomplish before lunch. And so what Paul is praying, how can he be so confident that God can actually bring this to pass? What, where's his confidence coming from? Look at verse 13. For he, for God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We, we try to say this often around here. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not, I was an okay guy, but I had sin in my life, and I really needed Jesus. That's how I like to think about myself. Even as I look back on my life, you know, I, I, was, I did some stuff, but I wasn't that bad. You know, I never, got, I never went to jail over it. I wasn't that bad. But, you know, I, of course I needed Jesus, you know, yeah. Y'all, that, that absolutely destroys what Paul is saying, the truth of the gospel is. That when I look at myself as pretty good, okay, not so bad, and Jesus kind of filled in the, the gaps for me. No, look at what Paul says in verse 13 that in our sin and lostness, we weren't just a little bit morally confused, that we dwelled, we lived in a domain of darkness. 
that our whole life was shrouded with a thick cloud of darkness. We had no hope for our future. We lived in the midst of absolute despair. We were ignorant of God. We were unrighteous in our hearts. We were enslaved to sin. No matter how nice I think I was, no matter how much trouble I avoided, the truth is I was living in a domain of darkness under the dominion, the Bible says, of Satan. I don't like to think of that. But that's the truth. That's what it is to be apart from Christ. And the only hope in that case is that someone outside of me, outside of you, would enter into that darkness and rescue us out of it. And that's exactly what God has done through Jesus. He sent Jesus into the darkness. God got his hands dirty. God humiliated himself by all accounts. He became nothing in the form of Jesus Christ to become like a slave for us, to enter into our darkness. He who knew no sin of his own became sin for us on our behalf. And, and Jesus has plucked us out of that darkness. He came in and found us and brought us out. But y'all, Paul goes even a step further than that. Jesus didn't just bring you out of darkness and set you in neutral. Better luck next time. Do better next time. No, he brought you out of darkness and has transferred you like a suffering immigrant brought out of a country of oppression into a safe and free country. He has transferred us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of God's love, an entirely new realm of existence. And it is in Him, in Christ, that we have redemption. The full price of your sin has been paid. And therefore, you are eternally forgiven of all sin. God doesn't just wipe your slate clean he brings you in, into an entirely new life. You are a new creation. You live under a new rule, the rule of a merciful Lord and Savior, no longer under the dominion of Satan and his darkness. Everything's different. That's how Paul can pray such a bold and ambitious prayer. Because he doesn't believe that God is here to just sprinkle blessings on us as we have need, but that God has ushered us into something new entirely. And life is no longer the same. Now, God does all of this. If we see the, the way that the, the, the verbs are, are used in 13 and 14, it's God who rescues, who transfers, who redeems, who forgives. God does it all. We receive this gift by faith. This is a gift of faith. That's what it is to be Christian. But it's not just a gift we receive. It's a new life. It's the rubber meeting the road. It's a life that is now applied in the real stuff of the everyday, because something new has come to us. And so, y'all, listen, when, when Paul began this letter, in the early verses of chapter 1, he was overjoyed of how the gospel has taken root in this church. The gospel is bearing fruit, and it's increasing. Wonderful things are happening. But then immediately after that, Paul prays for more. More. Paul does not want for us a good enough faith that exists mainly in the realm of thoughts and feelings, important as those things are. Paul wants, God wants a faith that goes deeper and truer and that makes a difference in how we live. A deeper knowledge, a deeper obedience, greater fruit, more endurance, greater joy. Those things do not exist only in the feelings. Those things show up in how we live and how we treat others and how we view the world and how we operate. See, Paul wants the Colossians to be in the game. 
pressing more and more into God. That's the prayer of his heart. Because we have been transferred to a new domain. We've been made to live in a new kingdom under the rule of a Savior. God was not obligated to do this for us. He didn't have to. He chose to. Because God's desire for you, for me, is that we would live as his ambassadors to the world. That we would have personally devoted lives. Yes, that's good for us. That's good for you and me. But that when rubber meets the road, when our faith becomes more and more applied to reality, that we would reflect the image of Jesus to those who see, to those who hear. And that's when our faith becomes big time. This is not eating Cheetos on the couch, watching it all happen on TV. This is, this is making and missing the layups and sweating and enduring the difficulties, right? This is the real stuff of life. We're living it anyway, by the way. You're living real life anyway. <laughs> Why not change our perspective? We're not just trying to get through. We're not just trying to get by. We're not just trying to get sprinkled with blessing periodically. I want my life to please God in every respect. See, that's when life becomes fun because it's no longer about me. I'm not doing it out of fear or for a reward. I'm doing it simply out of love for God and all that he's done for me. See, in Christ, God has given you his very best. God can't do any better for you than what he's already done. He can't give you something better than his own beloved son who has transferred you into his kingdom. And so let's be sure that in response, our heart says, I'm giving my very best back to him that I want to deepen in the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want to live in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in every respect and bear fruit in every good work. And I want the strength and power that he can supply in his glorious might that I might be the kind of person who endures under trial. And I will joyfully give thanks to him because of all that he's done for me and promised to me in his son, my savior. Let's pray. Father, this is an ambitious prayer, but it's in here for a reason. Your word declares it because it is possible. And I pray, Lord, that we would remove any doubt from our hearts this morning, thinking this is too ambitious for me. This is too lofty. This is too much for me. I'll never get there. Father, you directed Paul's hand. You inspired these words. This is a prayer that we can experience. And even if we only take little baby steps today and through this week and moving forward, I pray, Lord, that we would move forward. That we would not dabble in your word, but that we would desire to be filled with the knowledge of your will. That, Lord, we would not um, uh, passively feel good about our Christianity, but that we would seek to live in a manner worthy of you and please you in everything. That our heart would be to love you in how we live. And Lord, if times are hard, and certainly if they're not now, they will be, then I pray, Lord, we would seek you, that we wouldn't try to fix all our problems on our own, but that we would turn to you as a first priority and ask for your power, for your endurance, and for joy in the midst of even the hard times. Father, these are things that you delight to give. And if we are not experiencing these things today, I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us um, and and just call us to pray for these things. That, That as Paul prayed for the Colossian church, as I pray for Harvest Church right now, that we would pray for ourselves and for one another. This same prayer. 
and want nothing more than the, than the produce of this prayer, Lord, would you produce it? Would you make it so in our hearts, in our lives today? Lord, no longer allow us to be content to feel good feelings only when you've called us, Lord, to, to sincere life change, a life that pleases you. Make that our true ambition. And Father, we pray for all the grace to see it through, that you would fill, that you would uh, supply power, that, that you have transferred us from one place to the other. It's all you. And so as we fix our eyes on Jesus, change our hearts, change our lives. I pray one step at a time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.